Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to the Tulane Hullabaloo, with 132 jails and prisons and over 30,000 inmates, Louisiana is the world's prison capital. The state incarcerates more adults per capita than any other state in the Union. One aspect of Louisiana's detention facilities that doesn't receive enough attention is their environmental health impact. As in prisons elsewhere, improper wastewater treatment, inadequate asbestos management, and negligent hazardous waste and garbage disposal plague Louisiana facilities. EPA's Enforcement and Compliance History Online Database, or ECHO, demonstrates whether jails and prisons have been compliant with such federal regulations as the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and the Safe Drinking Water Act. As ECHO shows, the notorious Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola has been non-compliant with the Safe Drinking Water Act for about three years. The Louisiana Department of Corrections has been non-compliant with the Clean Water Act for several months. ECHO also shows that dangerous bacteria and chemicals have been present in water samples from Louisiana facilities. Earlier this summer, the GEO Group, one of the country's two largest private prison contractors, filed a petition with the Supreme Court seeking to prevent the government from releasing information about its immigration detention contracts with private prison corporations. Detention Watch Network and the Center for Constitutional Rights successfully sued under the Freedom of Information Act for the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement to make this information public. It's hoped that making these documents public would aid in efforts to better understand the detention bed quota system and its effect on families and individuals in immigration detention. The quota has helped render immigrants, including children and families, a source of profit for contractors, including the private prison companies that operate at least 62% of the immigrant detention beds. A win took place in a district court. The judge ordered the government to turn over the terms and condition of its contracts. However, GEO is attempting to overturn a ruling from the Second Circuit Court that says the corporation doesn't have standing to appeal a decision that the government itself has chosen not to appeal. GEO is using this filing to delay the process of transparency even longer. Ray Luke Levasseur is a former underground participant in the United Freedom Front, which carried out a campaign of attacks from 1975 to 1984 against South African apartheid and U.S. intervention in Central America. He spent 13 years in solitary confinement after his capture. In the first episode of our series on Ray Luke's experiences in prison and in struggle, he tells us the story of how he was radicalized by his imprisonment in Jim Crow, Tennessee, his contributions to the movement after his release, his decision to go underground to escape state repression, and his subsequent actions in capture. He also shares his experiences with race and repression, along with other lessons from trial and time on the inside. We'll be following up in subsequent episodes with more stories about struggles he participated in during his time in federal prison and since his release. I was arrested in early 1969 uh, on a 
relatively minor drug charge in terms of like selling a small amount of marijuana, but it got me a five-year sentence with no prior criminal record. So I ended up in some of the worst prisons that existed at the time. And uh, the con- the context was that that uh, or the immediate context in 1969 was that I had just gotten out of the military in September 68 uh, after having served in Vietnam. And it was the war that uh, was that, that first uh, bridge I crossed where uh, it changed my thinking on um, social issues um, or formed my thinking because I really wasn't thinking much about social issues up until then on political issues. And so I became, a, once I got out of the military, I had been in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I stayed lived in Tennessee and became involved in the Southern Student Organizing Committee, which was doing uh, anti-war, labor stuff, civil rights stuff. And um, we also published an alternative publication called The Wall in Clarksville, Tennessee. That drew the attention of the police. I made it easy for them by uh, letting my counterculture part of me uh, be uh, dominant and selling a little weed to get try to get, help get myself myself to school because I was going to school at the time and um, got busted. So uh, there was no there was no question that the group that I was with was was being targeted by the police. It was you know a lot of surveillance and stuff. Um, but um, so my you know out of my first that was my first political activism, Southern Student Organizing Committee. And uh, out of that, from that experience, I ended up getting busted. And so the second bridge I crossed is the uh, American Gulag, you know, where class and race, the great confluence of class and race in this country. And so, like I have uh, often said, you know, I sort of went in... Southern Penitentiary is a sort of a idealistic uh, radical of sorts, and came out like a you know a burning revolutionary. Um, I mean, there's a much larger context of this going back to the kind of ethnic community I grew up in, and um, a lot of you know early life experiences. But it was those two experiences, war and prison, in the '60s, um, that really formed, uh, you know, had the biggest impact on me in forming my earlier political views and positions. So I got out of prison. I got out of prison in 1971. Yeah, I went on to more activism. I was uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War and a group called SCAR, which had been formed by formerly incarcerated people along with others. And we started a bookstore, a radical bookstore, Red Side North. And um, this is going into, you know, the early 70s. And by late 70, by late 1974, we were having problems with the police in Portland, Maine, which is where SCAR, the group I was with, was located, including raids on the bookstore and getting assaulted and false arrests and all this kind of stuff, constant surveillance. And it was at that point that 
I left the world of uh, public organizing and went clandestine, which was to say I went underground. And I was clandestine, underground for right around 10 years before I was captured in 1984. Eventually, there were, initially there were seven of us. Uh, first there were five of us that were captured, then two more were captured within six months, which made seven. And then when we got to the two, two of the biggest cases, we had multi-defendant cases. There were eventually eight of us. The first case that was prosecuted against seven of us, we would call it Ohio 7 at the time, because five of us had been uh, captured in Ohio. We had a case out of New York, New York City, uh, which charged seven of us with United Freedom Front bombings that were conducted in the uh, early 1980s. Those property damage bombings focused on uh, opposition to apartheid in South Africa and opposition to the wars the U.S. was involved in in Central America, particularly around El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Um, Six of us were convicted of some of the counts. Actually, we beat most of the counts. But at the end of the day, at the end of the trial, um, on those partial convictions, we were given, you know, maximum sentences, which I think the highest sentence was 53 years, the lowest sentence was 15. I got 45. This was under old law sentencing. So there was a parole eligibility attached. We were no sooner done that case than we were charged in the government's premier case against us, their 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 big case against us, their their primary showcase, their their primary political trial. We were charged with sedition, uh, seditious conspiracy, and, and also uh, RICO charges, Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. This this indictment against us, which was out of Boston, and added one more defendant, that made eight of us, and it took the government over three years to prosecute it, and they basically lost the case. But it was their it was their really their showcase trial because it covered an entire ten year period, where the government said that this conspiracy started in Red Star North Bookstore in Portland, Maine, in 1974, and ended with our capture in 19. 19- 84. It included the same uh, United Freedom Fund bombings that we've been charged with in, in New York, along with bombings by Sam Melville, Johnson Jackson unit that had been done in the 70s. The primary focus of those SMJJ bombings was Puerto Rican independence and the release of the five nationalist prisons at that time, Willie LeBron uh, and, and four others. There was some there was some other political focus. This was an anti-apartheid action, and there was a couple of things done around prisons. And also, we were charged as part of the indictment with funding an underground group through expropriation. And of course, we were charged with weapons, explosive charges, some uh, confrontations with the police, in a case that cost them. I mean, the last time I, I saw figures in the newspaper on it, what it was cost them, they were already up to ten million dollars. And at the end, of, at, at the end of that trial, for those of us who went to trial, actually stood trial, and I was one of them. I represented myself as I had in New York. We were acquitted on sedition, and the jury locked in favor of, of acquittal on RICO charges, 
and the government threw in the towel, so they got no convictions on any of us that went to trial. But I had the earlier New York sentence, so the minute that I was done with that second trial, I was packed off to U.S. Penitentiary at Marion, Illinois, which was the government supermax prison at that time. This was late 1989. Marion had replaced Alcatraz. You were in your cell 23, 22 and a half hours a day. Uh, it was totally locked down. Um, and I was not sent there as a, a punitive transfer, which is publicly what Bureau of Prisons is trying to say. I was sent there as an administrative transfer. In other words, like, I didn't do, I, I wasn't sent there because I was guilty of any infraction within, within prison. I was sent there because of, like, what they perceived me, my political views and political associations. And and so I was I was at Marion for, I guess it was a little over five years, and the Bureau of Prisons and the government, you know, was dissatisfied with the physical structure of Marion because it wasn't initially designed for maximum isolation and solitary confinement. So uh, they came up with a new scheme, and that new scheme was to build a prison from the first brick up that would have... Every, would have sensory deprivation embedded into every brick of that facility, and that that prison uh, is and was was and is called ADX in Florence, Colorado. ADX is the show for administrative maximum. ADX replaced Marion as um, you know the federal federal government's most extreme isolation prison. And uh, it opened officially in late 1994, and I was among the first prisoners there because the first prisoners there sent to ADX were the prisoners that were in Marion. So I was there. Oscar Lopez Rivera was there, who um, was recently released after 35 years. Tom Manning, my one of my co-defendants, was there. Matula Shakur was there. You also are a number of political prisons in these kind of prisons. I was at ADX for about five years. Finally, I got extricated from the Supermax solitary confinement situation. I was probably in these kind of situations for out of my 20 years inside for about 13. And I finally got to a regular maximum security prison, U.S. Penitentiary at Atlanta. Although it's a maximum security prison, it's an open population prison, except for the segregation unit. And though I spent months in segregation there, I, I eventually made it to general population. And that's why I spent the last, of my, last five of my 20 years was in Atlanta. Intersection of race and class was like really in your face. It was obvious who was going to prison in Tennessee back then. And Tennessee was sort of a window in the whole prison system. Whether you looked at death row, whether you looked at segregation unit, or whether you looked out in the yard, in the mess hall, you could see the disproportionate number of black prisoners and the very disproportionate number of, of poor working class prisoners. So prisons, prisons have... 
uh, you know, a role in social control. And that's why despite the change in narrative around mass incarceration issues in the last seven or eight years, solitary confinement, and that's good that that's happening, but we've yet to see really have an impact yet on the level of mass incarceration in this country. If you go back and look at the first penitentiaries, if you look at the convict leasing system, the rise of the southern penitentiaries, chain gangs, all of that, it's all there. That's that's a big taproot of what incarceration is about in this country. And so when you start to get to the uh, era of, like, supermaxes, you know, where uh, control unit prisons, where uh, instead of instead of solitary confinement and isolation being the exception, it becomes in the rule in certain prisons. Pelican Bay is another example. Along with social control is political control. When you look at the supermaxes in this country, especially going back, you know, the last 25 years or so, where they've really, they've really multiplied to the point where you know three quarters of the states had some supermaxes. Maine, which is a, you know, not a highly populated state, has a supermax in its state state prison. Once they build them, they have to fill those cells. But in my experience, the um, if you look at the supermaxes and who's in there. You, you always find political radicals who may or may not have been associated with some particular group, or organization, or movement on the street or become radicalized uh, while they're inside. Or in some way, and, you know, I use that in the broadest terms, in terms of, like, um, you know, a person can be, uh, politicized inside to the point where, you know, they become a jailhouse lawyer and they start using the skill they're developing to challenge prison conditions. And all of a sudden they're targeted and persecuted for it and they find themselves in supermax. I saw that all the time. I saw people signal out because of their religion, particularly Islamic, which the Bureau of Prisons is very paranoid about. If they, if they see you attaching social lessons to your religious message. Well, Jesus Christ did. Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't a lay preacher, you know? So whatever the, you know, whatever they perceive, whenever, whenever they perceive you as any kind of a threat, even if it's just symbolic, you're going to find your ass in segregation at some point and likely a supermax at some point. When I was transferred from Tennessee State Penitentiary in Nashville to Brushy Mountain Penitentiary in 1970, Brushy Mountain was one of the early supermaxes. They didn't they didn't use that term back then, and you know, but Brushy had gone to a lockdown model. They had gone from you know convicts mining coal to prison staying in their cell 23 hours a day. So it was what you call the end of the line. And the reason I went there is because I crossed the Jim Crow lines in Nashville. It was, 
you know, racial segregation was was the uh, policy back then. There was no way I was going to walk around that, so I walked right through it. And that, just, just that, it wasn't like I was standing on a soapbox and, and quoting, quoting Stokely Carmichael or Martin Luther King or anybody else. It's just that you, you cross a line, a color line, the line that W.B. Du Bois says was the biggest problem of the 20th century, the color line. And as a person of one race sitting down with a person of another race in a mess hall, that was considered agitating, racial agitating. It was, it was considered a challenge to the way they were trying to control things at that penitentiary. So the solution to them was to put me in a prison when I was in my cell 23 hours a day. And that was in 1970. When I fast forward, you know, 15 years later, when I, when I was busted uh, after being undergone all those years, they immediately did the same thing with me. They They pulled me aside from the day I was arrested and had me locked up initially 24 hours a day, separated from other prisoners. It's like you've got some kind of disease called radicalism that they don't want to spread, and that's how they deal with it. But the, the, one of the problems that's developed over the, you know, this, during the proliferation of these, these, this modern-day supermaxes in the last 20, 25 years is that they build them so large now with so many cells that to, to, to justify it and to make it look like it's paying for itself in some way, you know, if they build a, a prison with you know a thousand cells, they're not going to find a thousand radicals. So they've, they've got to start filling those other cells with other people, you know, that are are deemed a management problem. And that's how that's how kind of we got to the situation. We're in now with this. With the, with, there is so much widespread use of solitary confinement in supermax prisons. Actually, the first time I went to prison, I, I considered myself. Uh, I really wasn't thinking of myself a political prisoner. I suppose I could have designated myself one if I stretched it a bit because I was politically active, and maybe they had something. You know that I think that did have something to do with why the police were focused on us and, and the animosity of the prosecutor because five of us were busted on on drug charges, but the only, only two of us went to prison, and the only two that went to prison were the two that were politically active. So, and I, and, and I gave you one example of how I was rebelling and how and even from the county jail before I got to the state prison in, in Nashville, I mean, the reason I got sent down there was because we had a food strike involving black and white prisoners. They, you know, the food they were giving us was horrible. We were sick. We were losing weight. And we threw it all on, on garbage all out on the tier. And, I, you know, the, the brothers asked me to, you know, address the sheriff about doing something about the food. The next day, he had me in front of a judge. I got a special order, and I was in segregation in a Tennessee State Prison the next day, all because of black and white prisons in the county jail standing up and said, you know, you're killing us with this food, you know. 
we need proper food. That was it. So, you know, an act of rebellion, really, and an act of solidarity, given that we were able to unite together across racial lines. The lockdown at Marion started in '83, and I didn't I didn't get there till a few years later. Then left on writ, and then come back a few years after that. So I, I very well I, I knew a lot of the prisons at, at Marion, and I knew the the history of it. A lot of the more stiffer resistance happened uh, before I got there. Um, you know it. It it's it's like it culminated in a lawsuit around conditions at Marion after it was locked down. Uh, you know, one of the one of the most outrageous means of dehumanizing and repressing somebody was they were essentially doing this anal rape this this you know, where they were they were the guards were sticking their finger of prisoners anuses under the pretense of looking for contraband. And it was like this and it was done on a lot of prisoners. And th- that that really that was one of many, many abuses that was taking place against the prisoners. That one is the one that I remember that inflamed uh, the anger and the passions of the prisoners more than any other. So that there was a lot of individual resistance, and which is a mostly uh, when this lockdown first happened, it was mostly how things played out because. I mean, you were all isolated from each other. There was, there was, a, uh, it was a very, very challenging to try and and formulate group group uh, resistance when you were all in separate cells, couldn't get together. So it was more about getting on the same page. If you're, if they got you out of your cell, this is what we want to do. If they try to do this to you, you resist. You may not be able to stop them. But you have to resist, and that issue of anal rape, because the BOP didn't call it rape, you know, they call it a digital search. But that was one thing where a lot of prisoners started physically resisting and got got the hell beat out of them for it. Take that all the way down to something a lot more subtle, but it's part of the same whole, which is we didn't talk to the guards. If you had to talk to them, you talk to them. If you don't have any toilet paper in your cell and you need some, you have to ask for it. But otherwise, silent. We didn't. We refused to talk to the guards. And that was, re- if you go to a regular prison, uh, I mean, that was an astounding act of subtle resistance because you get to an open population prison and you see a lot of prisoners Speaking with guards informally, I mean, when I first saw that after coming out of Supermaxes, I was I was really taken aback that these, these people were even talking to the guards. Like the line should be drawn. 
This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.